So, hi, Bob. Thank hi, you Joey. for How you doing? Your time. And uh, I'm always so appreciative of your time oh. and generosity. Uh, it's, and, uh, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, this is so I'm experimenting with this format, but it will it will end up online. So. Um, you know, I want you to talk freely, but but make sure that you realize it's on the record. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but can you first describe a little bit? I mean, you're. Let me tell tell me if this is right. But I think you're the most cited engineer in the history of the world. Is that true? I think people have said that. Yeah. I think. Uh, and you're an institute professor, um, and you're um, and you know you've been really helping me understand academia and MIT, but also the commercialization of technology. But um, and but you know you've told me your story before, but I was wondering maybe you can start by kind of telling us how you got here because you weren't always the most famous engineer. Right? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, actually, yeah. Was, uh, my my uh, early career was pretty rocky. I uh, went to Cornell as an undergrad and MIT as a graduate student, and when I got done, which was in 1974, with my doctorate, the common thing for chemical engineers to do at that time was to go into the oil industry. And mm -hmm. so I thought all my friends were doing that, so I thought I should do that. And I interviewed at these places and, and uh, actually got 20 job offers, for from Exxon alone, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, But I wasn't very excited about it. I just was looking for a way to use my background to help people, and I, I wasn't excited about that. One of the things I'd spent time doing was... Uh, when I was a graduate student, was starting the school for poor kids in Cambridge, and I really loved that. And one day I saw an ad to be assistant professor of chemistry education at City College in New York, and that really got me excited, and I wrote them a letter applying for a job, but they didn't write me back. <laughs> but I liked the idea, so that really put me on this path, and I kept writing different schools to be assistant professor of chemistry education, but none of them would write me back, so that wasn't going well. I started to think, what other ways could I use my education to help people? And I thought about medicine. And in 1974, that was very unusual for a chemical engineer. But anyhow, I wrote to a lot of hospitals and medical schools, and they didn't write me back either. <laughs> but, but one of the people in the lab where I was said I should write to this man named Judah Folkman. Mm -hmm. And they said sometimes he hired unusual people. And um, so I wrote to Dr. Folkman, and he was kind enough to offer me a job. And so I went to Boston Children's Hospital in the surgery department, which is where he was. And... There, I got involved in trying to do what we call as isolate the first substance that might stop blood vessels from growing. He had a theory, which most almost everybody didn't agree with, but his theory was that if you could stop blood vessels, that might lead to new ways of stopping diseases mm -hmm. like cancer. And my job was to see if I could actually isolate the first inhibitor and see if we could prove this. Critical to doing that, though, <clears throat> was that these molecules we thought were pretty big molecules. And one of the big problems when you do some things in medicine and biology sometimes is you have to have what we call a bioassay, and there wasn't one. So we, and studying blood vessels takes, a, it took a long time for them to grow, like several months. So we had to have a way to deliver through a tiny little piece of plastic these molecules for several months. <clears throat> so that was something that I began trying to do. And the conventional wisdom was that you couldn't use plastics to deliver molecules for a long time. Because if you put a molecule in a plastic, it was kind of like trying to have it move through a brick wall. You couldn't do it. So I was trying to solve those two problems. And I actually got, I thought, some interesting data in the beginning. Um, and we actually published a paper in Nature on 
the first way to deliver large molecules through plastic. And in science, actually on isolating the first uh, inhibitors that stop blood vessels from growing. But I think when we first did that, people really didn't believe it. And people were really skeptical. And, um, and it took a long time before people did accept it. In fact, I couldn't, you know, when I went to um, try to find jobs as a professor, no chemical engineering department in the country would hire me. And I ended up getting a job in a nutrition department, actually, at MIT. But even there, the year after I got the job, the uh, department head who hired me left, and everybody said to me, well, you better start looking for another job because they just didn't believe in this stuff. And actually, I got my first nine grants turned down and things like that. So it's a very rocky start, but uh, eventually, you know, people started using these approaches. And today, both the areas of angiogenesis research and um, delivering molecules have become important. So things turned out okay. And, and I remember you were telling me about a story that, uh, um, which reminded me of uh, something that a lot of uh, we talk about in entrepreneurship, which is, uh, you know, that you you were trying this thing that people had already written um, about not really being capable of working in, and the and the in the story about your peer reviewers. Can, can, you, can you tell? Yeah. Me well, that? actually, there were several things that happened on that. One is is um, the people didn't think you could release these large molecules, and you know, one of the things I wanted to do was get a patent. You know, we actually, it's interesting, Boston Children's Hospital, where I was, never had a patent in their history. And Dr. Folkman and I decided to file for the first one. That might seem very common today, but in the 1970s, it was, you know, never happened. So we did. And five years in a row, patent examiner turned it down. And, um, and, and, and you know, so science, I kept, we kept trying to explain it to him, but he didn't get it. And so, um, what happened was I, I thought, you know, everybody, when I first started doing this, told me it's impossible, it couldn't work. So I wondered if anybody ever wrote that down. So I actually did what we call a science citation search, and I looked back in the literature to see who wrote about what we did, and I actually found a paper by five very famous chemists and chemical engineers saying that you couldn't do this. Mm -hmm. And and so we showed that to the, um, I showed it to the lawyer, and he showed it to the patent examiner, and the patent examiner then actually said if I could get affidavits from those people saying they really wrote that, he'd allow, allow the patent, and he, and he did. Um, and also, you know, I mean, the reviews were, that I got on my initial grants were, I mean, they weren't just rejected, they were like very soundly rejected. People mm -hmm. said that it was impossible, that it couldn't work. They also said that me being an engineer, trying to do some of these things in biology, like trying to stop blood vessels from growing, they said that you know, that I don't know anything about biology. I don't know anything. They even, I think, said I knew less about oncology, which I wasn't sure how you could do less than nothing. <laughs> but uh, but anyhow, they, that was uh, they got very negative reviews. So so this is kind of where I wanted to ask you, because I'm, I'm new to academia, and I'm just learning about peer review. And, you know, you kind of persevered despite the peer review system not understanding what you were trying to do, at least at the beginning. Yeah. And as you become more influential, I'm sure peer review got, has gotten easier, right? Is that true? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I think that's the only way it could have gone, yeah. you know, but, 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 but yes, it's gotten easier, but still not easy, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, whenever you do something, I mean, no matter who you are, I think, mm -hmm. you know, you go through a tough process, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it's, it's complicated, and also, usually, 
what happens is, I mean, there's a, there's a journal and their editors, and then there's literally a few people. Usually the peer review is usually, you know, two to four people, and, mm -hmm. you know, they have a lot of control over things. So I guess the, my question is, do you, do you think, despite the fact that the peer review isn't, was tough at the beginning for you, and it's probably for a lot of my faculty, they feel that peer review is, is not fair or it's not broken or it reinforces um, the establishment. Mm -hmm. um, but I've heard you say positive things about peer review. I mean, overall, do you think it's sort of the best of all of the various ways yeah. you might want to do things like um, publishing or grants? I haven't thought, I, you know, I think it's a great question. I haven't thought of a better way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think particularly peer review, when you get the comments, you know, sometimes you get peer review when you don't get the comments or you don't get a chance to respond. Mm -hmm. I think if you get peer review and you do get to respond, I do think that's the best way. But I do feel it takes leadership on the part, if it's a journal, of the editors. Mm -hmm. And if it's a place like the NIH, mm -hmm. it probably will take leadership on the part of government officials. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's very hard to say, okay. after you've asked somebody to do peer review, mm -hmm. To say, well, I'm going to overrule you. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. people wouldn't like that. No. So I think it's it's complicated. But I I, I don't know of a better way than yeah. peer review. I mean, and I, I really yeah. like peer review more than an arbitrary decision. Yeah, yeah. It feels a little bit like the joke about democracy being, you know, terrible but better than anything else. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's um, because I, I think one of the things that we struggle with at the Media Lab is when we're trying to explore areas that don't have well-known disciplines or where you don't have peers that can really understand or evaluate your work, it's quite difficult to get a grant. And in a way, because we have this consortium of companies that give us discretionary funding, I'm able to kind of arbitrarily fund people um, that wouldn't otherwise um, be easily funded. Obviously, we have some faculty members who are squarely in the domain where they can publish with peer review, but uh, many of our faculty can't publish papers or get government grants, and, and we sort of seed those um, people early on. Um, and so, but then later, you know, some of these, you know, like, you know, um, Roz Picard with her affective computing, I think sh she couldn't get grants initially because NIH didn't think that it was a thing. Right. But then eventually, you know, it, it, it does. And, and even for you, I think, you know, I guess the question is if you hadn't been at MIT and if you hadn't gotten lucky, could the peer review system have maybe, you know, um, disabled you, or, or would you have persevered, you think, if you tried? Well, th th that's a control experiment we haven't done, <laughs> but, 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 but I would say that, but I guess I would say a couple things. Mm -hmm. You know, one, I think, like, I mean, fundraising in general, mm -hmm. I think you have to understand when you're a faculty member, you know, what the issues are, and they're different places, right? If you go to NIH, you know, they have sort of one set of things that you think about. If you go to National Science Foundation, it might be another. If you go to DARPA, mm -hmm. it might be another. And then you could go to whole other places, right? You could go to foundations, mm -hmm. and they have a different set of things that mm -hmm. they care about. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a company, they may have a different set of things you care about. And I guess for me, what happened was, is that over time, I sort of would learn the rules. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's interesting, you know, when I mentioned to you before, that I helped start this high school for poor kids. Mm -hmm. That was a great experience. It, like, I almost think if I hadn't done that, maybe I wouldn't have I done see. as well, because as hard as it is raising money for 
for you know government grants for the research, raising money for you know poor kids in high school. Mm -hmm. The private was a private high school for poor kids. That was really hard, and mm -hmm. I and I would, and I kind of learned a couple things from it. Mm -hmm. One, the first thing I learned was finding out where the money was, and and that high school even got money from the federal government for for figuring out you know making the argument that you could prevent drug abuse amongst young people and mm -hmm. things like that. And, and, and we got money like from MIT where I was a student mm -hmm. because I would make the argument that MIT students are working there. Mm -hmm. so, so, I, so the first thing I would learn there at the high school, and I translated that later to the circumstances I had for raising grants for research, is figuring out sometimes unusual places to raise mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is once you find out where those unusual places are or that maybe they're usual places, but how do how do how are they thinking about funding? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and and every place is very very different. Like I think, if you get money from a foundation, like like we do things with Gates Foundation mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Juvenile Diabetes Foundation and other foundations, and they, you know, they what they care about is seeing a disease treated. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. they're not so necessarily that concerned about, mm -hmm. um, you know, have you, if if you published a paper or something like that, they want to see something treated. If you do something with a company. They might want to see certain milestones hit, or or, or maybe intellectual property, mm -hmm. and then if you work for, and then different government agencies, they'd have different rules. So I, I kind of would just make a point of making sure mm -hmm. I learned that because mm -hmm. I felt having funding was just mm -hmm. so important to everything I wanted to do. And and, the, and I guess that's sort of the other meta question that I had, which is, you need money for science, and money sort of by definition is a proxy for influence and. I think that you know you were able to figure out and learn, and you've become great at fundraising. And and while you you know I don't look at you as a political person, you figured out how to navigate that. And I think some scientists just aren't very good at it, or they haven't had a mentor for it. And it feels and and, and we're lucky because we're at MIT, and you know just saying you're from MIT gives you access. And so um, it's it's sort of an interesting question because in Japan I noticed this more maybe, but um, academia and science feels very hierarchical. Where you're not supposed to question your your elders, and and it's it's mm -hmm. and the money flows in a fairly uh, uh, political way, you know, mm -hmm. where where Tokyo University gets half the government funding, and then the next university gets right? half of that, and then the wow. next university goes, and it's very very hierarchical, and um, and so in a way, and this is somewhat controversial thing to say, but many people do, which is that the most interesting. Um, inventions often happen in the smaller universities because they're more likely to question the predominant theory and in in many of the large universities the students are less now at MIT I know students do question theories and things like that but still there's a there's a sense that 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 you know the administrator like so for instance I think of myself much more as an administrator than a researcher and I feel that my job is to try to get the resources so that the faculty don't have to spend as much of their time or energy worrying about that and to try to give them freedom um, but you know you, you're able to do both the research and the and, and the fundraising, but it's, it, I think it's a very particular s skill, and I, I wonder whether, again, it's probably not the best, but I can't, I haven't really thought of a, a better way, and uh, and maybe, like you said, it's it's a combination of foundations and individuals and sort of a variety of, of funding sources to try to find those unusual things that ought to be funded, but. Well, I think, I think a couple things. One, I think, you know, if you're in academia, funding is critical, so I think, you know, I, I, I could see that even when I was a graduate student, certainly as a postdoc, and so I would 
made that a point. You know, I just felt like that was key because I, I, I needed that to do the research um, that I wanted to do. I think, you know, on your point at MIT, and I think, you know, some, what, some of the things that you've told me about your philosophy on hiring people, I think you are looking for people who aren't conventional. And I think that, that if you look for people who aren't conventional, they will not necessarily obey the rules, so to speak, or they will think out of the box. And, you know, I was lucky, I feel, that I worked for this man, Judah Folkman, who I mentioned, and he was an unconventional thinker. And I think that made a big difference to me, you know, him as a role model. And I think one of the things that I actually feel has been good at MIT in a lot of ways for me and for others is you have, there are role models, you know, mm-hmm. older people. And um, even as I look at my students in my lab, you know, that they, I have some postdocs who I, you know, feel think out of the box. And so I think when students see this, that that, that helps, whether mm-hmm. it's them or me or you or Dr. Folkman. And so I, I, I feel that MIT has actually been a, a good place. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the other thing I feel at MIT has, which I think is very good, that helps people think in maybe unusual ways, and the Media Lab and the Cancer uh, Center are, are good examples of this, is is the interdisciplinarity of it. Mm-hmm. In other words, that you can have people with very different backgrounds, and yet you can sit in the same room with them, and I feel it stretches you. Yeah. You know, for me, when I was a chemical engineer working in the hospital, what was really good is I was working with all these surgeons and biologists, and it really stretched me. It really forced me to think about things that I might never, never have thought about otherwise. Yeah, and, and I, I do feel that that the well, I'm a college dropout and the Media Lab is a weird place, but I found that you and all of the senior administration at MIT have been um, um, unexpectedly uh, welcoming and sort of happy when we're pushing. So I think that that's, that's, been, that's, that's been very um, um, Surprising and, and well, you 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 you're, you're a big thinker. I mean, you could be you could be a college dropout, but you're a big thinker, and I think you've been a great mentor for you know the people at the Media Lab. I mean, you know that I mean many of whom I know, and you just hired one of my postdocs, uh, Jane, and you know, and I and I feel like that when people see that 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 makes them feel that that they can do things that they couldn't do otherwise. And I think that's why the Media Lab's been a very attractive place. And, and, and you know, and the, the, I, I find at least the current administration to be, you know, great at being good examples on that. Uh, the, the last thing, because I know we want to get to dinner, is I want to ask that's you That's okay. <laughs> Whatever you want. Is um, um, translation of technology. Because I think in the past, a lot of technology was transferred to large companies that would then turn those molecules into drugs or to turn them into, you know, um, products. But more and more we're seeing uh, companies, small companies, startups and other things. And I know um, you got me involved in a company, PureTech, which is building companies. But do you think that academia and funding has to change to make that better or and you've started so many companies I mean yeah. or and, and the, the, the weird because again it's I guess like you said it's not a very good control experiment because everybody has difficulty doing it but you do it so well so maybe you're not the right person to ask the answer but for the answer but do you think there's anything we could change to make it easier or better oh I think there's a lot of things that could be changed I mean first I, I think it's been great what's happened in Kendall Square, the area around MIT, I think it's, you know, now is the largest concentration of biotech companies in the world. And we see 
you know, all kinds of places in Boston, like the Seaport area and others, you know, doing it. And I think we see the nation as a whole uh, doing more and more. But that being said, I think there's probably a lot of things that can be done. Um, you know, I mean, and MIT actually and Stanford, I think, are good role models for things that other universities can can do. And I, I, I've had the opportunity, as, as, as you have too, I'm sure, of seeing many universities. So I think there's a couple of things. One of the reasons I feel like MIT and Stanford, in my opinion, have done very well is because their criteria for doing a license or making something happen is impact. Mm -hmm. Many, many schools, for various reasons, the thing that drives them is money. Mm -hmm. In other words, are they going to get a deal with company X or company Y or venture capitalist X or, or venture capitalist Y that's going to bring money in the short term to the university? Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. I think that what you want to do is take the long view, mm -hmm. is can you make companies, can you get technology out there that will make a difference in the world, even if it takes 10, 20, 30 years. Great examples of that at, uh, at Stanford or Hewlett and Packard, right? They, that started in the 20s. And, you know, Stanford didn't get a cent from whatever they did in the beginning, but they were grateful alumni and they built something great and they've donated, I think, billions. Mm -hmm. At MIT, I think it's the same thing. You have, you've created this, in Kendall Square, this enormous uh, area where all these MIT graduate students and others, you know, are just uh, passionate about what they do. And I, I think it will pay back, and I think already has paid back over the years of making MIT, you know, a greater and greater place. And I think that w when people ask me, you know, really anywhere in this country, I've actually been asked to speak to both, by both the governor of New York and the governor of, of Virginia about this, you know, to them and, and their staff and others. And I, it's also true in, in other countries. Is is what is the most important thing that, that the government can do to help these things? Mm -hmm. And to me, the number one thing is to is to give good funding mm -hmm. to the research universities in their state or in their country. Uh, you know, to to really do great science, and a lot of times it's basic science and basic engineering. So I think that's that's probably to me the most important thing that can be done, is to give funding mm -hmm. to to the universities. And to me, it's no accident that when you look at what are the two greatest centers of startup companies, I think in the world, it's the area around Stanford and the area around MIT. I don't think it's any accident that it's those two schools. I think the more other places can do that, mm -hmm. you know, the better off they'll be. And I think both the state and federal governments can help them. I also feel that, you know, laws can be made to, you know, in terms of taxes and other things that can lower the bars. And, and I think the more that can be done to foster innovation and to allow funding for innovation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that's also key. So I think there's a mm -hmm. lot mm -hmm. that can be done. I think, though, that MIT and Stanford have helped pave the way because of, I think, the wisdom of, you know, the administration of those places. Do you think there's anything we can be doing better? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that, I think one area that I think needs to be thought through more and more is this issue of conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's all these rules, and yet when you really examine them, mm -hmm. at least to me, and I've asked people who are on the committees and make the rules about this, I, I don't think they're terribly well thought through. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, almost all schools have different conflict of interest rules. 
mm-hmm. uh, and then they keep changing. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I feel like that that is something that is poorly understood mm-hmm. in terms of rationale. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I feel like there's all these rules that prevent students from doing things mm-hmm. and postdocs from doing mm-hmm. things where I think that the students and postdocs would really benefit from them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and yet they're not allowed to do them. And, and, and sometimes it might be right, but it's mm-hmm. not like that it's, it's not like it's really well thought through. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that's one area. And I think, um, you know, there may be ways to, and I think, uh, like MIT has this Deshpande fund, which I think mm-hmm. has been great, but I think it would be great if it was a bigger fund. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that more funds that can be aimed at things like that, mm-hmm. that helps students and postdocs and professors. So mm-hmm. I think there, there are plenty of things that we could do better. Right. Well, thanks, Bob. My pleasure, Jeremy. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you. See everybody later. I can always-